The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It does not constitute legal or other professional advice. No one connected with this podcast can be responsible for your use of the information discussed. The views expressed are those of the podcaster and do not represent the opinions of any other person or entity. These views are subject to change, revision, and rethinking at any time. Welcome to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing, a podcast blending the demands of the book with the rulings from the bench through the lens of the bag. Police officers with a solid understanding of the law and their legal powers are more confident, competent, and effective. Each and every episode will examine a legal issue in policing by reviewing current Canadian criminal case law from coast to coast to coast. Be prepared to uncover a legal lesson that will improve your decision making. Now let's leap in. Hello everyone, my name is Mike Nowakowski, your podcast host, and you are listening to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing. I am pleased to say that Leap is now being listened to in more than 75 cities. Thank you all for tuning in and spreading the word about the podcast. In April of this year, a special committee on reforming BC's Police Act released a report. In it, committee members noted that there is not much ongoing police training, except for tactical training. My goal is to change that with ongoing professional development through this podcast. If police powers such as detention, arrest, search, and questioning are investigative tools that police can utilize to enforce laws and protect the public, then case law acts as the user manual for those tools. Why wouldn't you read the manual before you use the tool? Other times, the manual chapter hasn't been written yet, and you will do your best to make the tool fit, given what you know and how you predict the law will apply. What more can anyone expect? Now let's jump into this episode. Have you ever wondered what would happen if you arrested somebody only to find out that the basis for your arrest was not actually a crime? What if you made a mistake about the law? What if you made a mistake about the facts? Is there a difference? These are some of many issues pondered in this episode where I will be reviewing the Supreme Court of Canada decision entitled R.V. Tim, 2022, SCC 12. What happens when an officer makes a mistake of law in effecting an arrest? Does a police officer's mistake of law render an arrest unlawful and therefore arbitrary under Section 9 of the Charter? If the answer to that is yes, are the subsequent searches of the arrestee nevertheless authorized by law under Section 8? As I read the judgment, I placed myself in the position of the arresting officer. I can remember many times in my career where I encountered a situation and had to reflect on whether or not I actually had a crime. Sometimes it was obvious that it was a civil issue I was dealing with. Other times, I would often run through the essential elements of a potential offense in my mind and then have to make a call. Detain? Don't detain. Arrest? Don't arrest. Let the person proceed and continue to investigate. I could always track them down later and arrest if needed. I am sure many of you listening have had this same experience. So now let's take a look at the facts of RV Tim. This case arose from an incident following a single vehicle collision. The car the accused... Mr. Soka Tim was operating, collided with a road sign, but he kept driving. A passerby called 911 to report the hit-and-run collision. She said the vehicle had front-end damage and fluids were leaking. Fire, medical, and police services responded to her call. A police officer found Tim standing on the roadside near his vehicle about a kilometer from the collision, speaking with a firefighter. The vehicle had become disabled and had stopped. Tim confirmed he was the driver and was cooperative with police. The officer asked him for his driver's license, vehicle registration, and proof of insurance. When Tim returned to his vehicle and opened the driver's side door to retrieve his documents, the police officer saw him try to hide a small Ziploc bag containing a single yellow capsule-type pill by swiping it to the ground from the door handle ledge. The officer identified the pill as gabapentin, which he had seen trafficked before with other street drugs such as fentanyl and methamphetamine. The officer immediately arrested Tim for possessing a controlled substance, handcuffed him, and searched his person. During the pat-down, police found live ammunition for a 22 caliber rifle and a 45 caliber handgun in a back pant pocket. 
Five fentanyl pills were found in a cylinder attached to a chain around Tim's waist, and two hydromorphone pills, two elprazulam pills, and another gabapentin pill were in his jacket. Three cell phones along with $480 in cash consisting of 1920s and 250s were also located in his pockets. While Tim was being patted down, another officer searched his car, finding a folded knife, a canister of bear spray, four fentanyl pills, and two Alprazolam pills. Following the pat-down, Tim was escorted to a police vehicle when the arresting officer noticed he was walking strangely. He was limping and shaking his leg as if he had something concealed in his pants. The officer then saw 22 caliber ammunition fall from his pant leg. The officer patted Tim down again by touching the outside of his pants in the groin area. The officer felt a metal object that became dislodged and fell from Tim's pants. This object was a double-barreled, over-under firearm loaded with a live round in each barrel. It was described as a small Derringer-type pistol. Tim was then arrested for possessing the prohibited firearm and he was taken to the police station where he was strip-searched down to his underwear. His waistbound was searched to see if anything else was hidden, but no further contraband or weapons were located. At the time of his arrest, Tim was under a firearms prohibition and an undertaking not to be in possession of drugs. It wasn't until later when the officer received the lab analysis of the pill that he learned gabapentin was not a drug listed under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, CDSA for short. As a result of this event, Tim was charged with several criminal code and CDSA offenses, including possessing a loaded firearm, carrying a concealed weapon, possessing a weapon while prohibited, breach of undertaking, and possessing fentanyl. At his trial in the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench, the evidence established that the arresting officer was mistaken about the law. While fentanyl, hydromorphone, and elprazolam are all CDSA-controlled substances, gabapentin is not. It is a prescription painkiller and anti-seizure medication. So although the officer correctly identified the yellow pill as gabapentin, he erroneously believed it was a controlled substance under the CDSA. As a consequence of this mistake of law, Tim argued that his charter rights under Sections 8, Search and Seizure, and Section 9, Arbitrary Detention, were breached, and the evidence, including the pistol, ammunition, and fentanyl, ought to be excluded under Section 24-2. The trial judge found the warrantless arrest was lawful. Not only did the officer have a subjective belief that gabapentin was a controlled substance, this belief was objectively reasonable because the officer had seen gabapentin trafficked with other street drugs before and saw Tim tried to hide the pill. Since the arrest was lawful, the searches incidental to it, the two pat-downs, the vehicle search, and the strip search were reasonable. There was no reason to exclude the evidence and Tim then pled guilty to the charges. He was sentenced to three and a half years in prison. This led to Tim's first appeal. He argued before a three-judge panel of Alberta's top court that the officer's grounds for arrest were not objectively reasonable. However, a two-member majority of Alberta's Court of Appeal concluded the officer had the necessary grounds to make the initial arrest. The officer knew the pill was gabapentin, and he had seen it trafficked in conjunction with illicit street drugs before. I quote, On reasonable and probable grounds, he believed in the existence of a state of facts and law which, if it did exist, would have the legal result that the person being arrested, in this case the accused, committed a criminal offense, that being in possession of a controlled substance, end quote. To help explain its point on reasonableness, the majority attached as an appendix to its decision a copy of the CDSA schedules listing hundreds of drugs to demonstrate it would be an impossible standard to expect a police officer to possess an encyclopedic knowledge of the schedules. The officer's mistake of law did not invalidate the arrest. Since the arrest was lawful, the searches that followed were reasonable as an incident to the arrest. Tim's convictions were upheld. 
A lone dissenting judge, however, found the arrest was not objectively reasonable because of the officer's mistake of law. This judge would have excluded all of the evidence and acquitted Tim. This type of split, or division, among appellate judges is not uncommon. This demonstrates the law sometimes is not all that easy to understand and apply. Of course, this did not end with Alberta's highest court weighing in. Tim again appealed his conviction, this time to a seven-member panel of the Supreme Court of Canada. This is where things got interesting. In assessing the merits of Tim's appeal, the Supreme Court examined the facts of this case in six cascading events, two arrests, and four searches. The first arrest occurred when the officer recognized the yellow pill that was swept away as gabapentin and arrested Tim for possessing it. This led to the first search incident to arrest when Tim was promptly patted down and more drugs, ammunition, cash, and cell phones were found. The second search occurred when police looked through Tim's vehicle and found more drugs, the knife, and bear spray. The third search occurred when Tim was frisked a second time at the police car after 22 caliber ammunition fell from his pant leg. This led to the dislodging of the pistol. This prompted a second arrest for possessing the firearm. Finally, a fourth search occurred in the form of a strip search at the police station when Tim was stripped down to his underwear. Now let's examine each investigative step. Question number one. Was the first drug arrest lawful? The short answer is no. The Supreme Court found it is unlawful for the police to arrest someone based on a mistake of law. The court defined a mistake of law as, I quote, when the officer knows the facts and erroneously concludes that they amount to an offense when, as a matter of law, they do not, end quote. And that's what happened in this case. The officer correctly identified the pill as gabapentin, but erred in concluding its possession was illegal. Remember, it was not until the officer later received the lab analysis of the drug, which confirmed it to be gabapentin, that he learned it was not a drug listed under the CDSA. The court stated, and I quote, Allowing the police to arrest someone based on what they believe the law is, rather than based on what the law actually is, would dramatically expand police powers at the expense of civil liberties. This would leave people at the mercy of what particular police officers happen to understand the law to be and would create disincentives for the police to know the law. Canadians rightly expect the police to follow the law, which requires the police to know the law. To be clear, I am not suggesting that the police must see and correctly identify a specific drug from the hundreds of controlled substances under the CDSA before they may lawfully arrest a suspected drug offender. Police routinely arrest suspected drug offenders for potential infractions of the CDSA even when they do not see or identify specific drugs. Courts routinely uphold the legality of such arrests if they conclude that there were reasonable and probable grounds to arrest. End quote. Now this is different from a mistake of fact, for example, where an officer reasonably misidentifies a substance as an illegal drug which later turns out not to be. Sometimes the police will incorrectly identify a specific drug and make an arrest. Other times the police may arrest a person for a drug offense even when they do not see or identify a specific drug. The legality of such arrests are routinely upheld by courts if the judge concludes that there were reasonable grounds for the arrest. Here's a hypothetical. You stop a vehicle and see, in plain view, a small, clear baggie on the console. It appears to you that the baggie contains what looks like glass shards. You have seen this before and believe the glass-looking shards are likely crystal meth, especially by how they are packaged. Glass, ice, shards are all slang terms to describe crystal meth. You then arrest the driver for possessing the methamphetamine. 
If it turns out that the glass shard substance is not methamphetamine, but some other non-controlled substance, your arrest will not be unlawful for that reason alone, as long as you honestly believed it was meth and your belief was objectively reasonable. Remember, reasonable grounds is not about being right or wrong, correct or incorrect, or accurate or inaccurate. Reasonable grounds is about being reasonable. Now back to the case. Since Tim's initial arrest was unlawful, the resulting detention was arbitrary and breached Section 9 of the Charter. Question number two, was the first pat-down lawful? Short answer, no. One of the prerequisites for a valid search incident to arrest is that the person searched must be lawfully arrested. Since the arrest for possessing the gabapentin was unlawful, the pat-down conducted as an incident to the unlawful arrest was unreasonable under Section 8 of the Charter. Question number three, was the vehicle search lawful? Short answer, no. Just as the pat-down faltered on the basis that the arrest was unlawful, the vehicle search met the same fate. The vehicle search conducted as an incident to the unlawful arrest was unreasonable under Section 8 of the Charter. Question number four, was the second pat-down lawful? Short answer, yes. The Supreme Court found it was a lawful search incident to investigative detention relating to the traffic collision investigation. At trial, Tim had conceded he was detained for the purposes of investigating the motor vehicle accident. After all, the police were responding to a collision in which the driver failed to remain at the scene of an accident. Offenses under both Alberta's Traffic Safety Act and, in some circumstances, the Criminal Code. Thus, apart from the erroneous drug investigation, Tim was lawfully detained as part of a traffic collision investigation. The officer came to where the damaged car had stopped and approached Tim because he was suspected of fleeing the scene of a collision with a roadside sign. Incidental to a lawful investigative detention, the police may search the detainee as long as they have reasonable grounds to believe that their safety or the safety of others was at risk. The officer not only had the necessary subjective concern about safety, but his belief was objectively reasonable as well. And here I quote the Supreme Court. The officer had just found bullets on the accused during a pat-down search, and then he saw more bullets falling from his pants. The accused was limping and shaking his leg as if he had something concealed in his pants. The obvious something was a gun. When there are concealed bullets, there may be a concealed gun. The further pat-down search of the accused person in which the officer dislodged a loaded handgun by merely touching the outside of the accused pants was also conducted reasonably." End quote. In other words, there were independent grounds justifying the safety search as an incident to the investigative detention. Since Tim had been lawfully detained for the traffic collision investigation and the officer had the necessary grounds for a safety search, the second pat-down conducted as an incident to an investigative detention was not unreasonable under Section 8 of the Charter. Question number 5. Was the firearm arrest lawful? Short answer, yes. The Supreme Court found Tim had been lawfully arrested for the weapons offenses after the ammunition and the handgun fell from his pants. This arrest was lawful and therefore not arbitrary. This leads to the fourth and final search. Was the strip search lawful? Short answer, yes. The Supreme Court reasoned, and I quote, The strip search at the police station was incident to this weapons arrest because it was for the purpose of discovering concealed weapons or evidence related to the offense for which the accused was lawfully arrested, end quote. The strip search was minimally intrusive, conducted reasonably, and limited to the waistband of Tim's underwear which he wore throughout the search. The strip search was not unreasonable under Section 8 of the Charter. So, doing the math, three charter breaches had occurred. The initial arrest for possessing the gabapentin was unlawful and therefore arbitrary under Section 9, and the first pat-down and vehicle search incident to that unlawful arrest were unreasonable under Section 8. The second pat-down, however, 
was reasonable as a safety search incidental to the lawful traffic collision investigation. The second arrest for the firearm possession was lawful and therefore not arbitrary, and the station house strip search undertaken as an incident to the firearm arrest was also reasonable. Now, what about a remedy for the three charter breaches? This is where the court was split six judges to one. Six judges found the charter breaches to fall at the less serious end of the misconduct scale such that exclusion was weakly favored. The officer made an honest mistake. The charter breaches were inadvertent and not deliberate. The officer tried to respect the charter and there was no evidence of willful blindness or a flagrant disregard for charter rights. Further, there was no evidence of a systemic problem or lack of training that contributed to the officer's honest mistake. Second, the initial unlawful arrest and first two searches had a moderate impact on Tim's charter-protected interests. Although unlawfully arrested, Tim was detained lawfully for the traffic collision investigation. Moreover, the first pat-down and vehicle search were minimally intrusive. The pat-down was a relatively non-intrusive procedure and Tim had a reduced expectation of privacy in the vehicle. Finally, society had an interest in the adjudication of this case on its merits. The evidence was reliable and relevant to the prosecution of these serious offenses. The charter breaches led to the discovery of a loaded gun, ammunition, and fentanyl, a drug that has been described as public enemy number one. Upon balancing the Section 24-2 factors, the majority of six Supreme Court judges admitted the evidence and Tim's convictions were upheld. A single judge wrote a short dissenting opinion. Although he agreed with the majority's Section 8 and Section 9 charter analysis, he would have excluded the evidence under Section 24-2 and acquitted Tim on all charges. So what legal lessons can we learn from this case? Number one, not so much a legal lesson, but we need to be safe. In this case, a concealed loaded pistol was missed on the first pat-down. It is difficult to know how well hidden the handgun was, but you must ensure your searches are thorough. Number two, know the law. Just as ignorance of the law is not an excuse for a citizen, it is not an excuse for a police officer either. In order to know and understand the law, you must study it. Read the statutes relevant to your work and review the case law as it develops. The legality of your actions depends on this. Number three, A mistake of law is fatal to reasonable grounds. This applies to both an arrest and an investigative detention. As the Supreme Court noted in this case, just as a warrantless arrest based on a mistake of law infringes Section 9 of the Charter, so too does an investigative detention based on a mistake of law. Number four, all is not lost. Even if you make an honest mistake and inadvertently breach a charter right, the evidence might still be admitted. But this will depend on the three lines of inquiry under the Section 24-2 analysis, which includes an assessment of where your conduct falls on the good faith, bad faith spectrum. If you think this podcast would interest others, I would ask that you share this with at least three colleagues. And if you have a topic you would like discussed in a future episode, you can email me at legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. That's legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. And remember, be careful what you practice. You might get good at it. Be smart and stay safe.